you're listening to the Visionary Life Podcast. I'm your host, Kelsey Rydell. Each week, I'll bring you conversations with some of the most passionate, hardworking, and limitless thinkers on this earth who have a story to share, a brand that inspires, or a fire inside of them to live life on their own terms. The intention behind each episode is simple, and that's to include you in these conversations so that you can learn, apply, and grow in your own life and in your business. If I can share one quick secret with you before we begin, it's that we all have a little bit of visionary inside of us, but perhaps somewhere along the line, someone told you to play small, to play safe, and that led you to live an ordinary life. Tuning into Visionary Life will help you dust off the limiting beliefs you carry around so that you can begin to create your own most visionary life. It's in you, it's in all of us, let's dive in. Combating loneliness, why Picasso can charge infinite amounts for a painting, finding true happiness, sharing your message on a stage, boldly asking for what you want in life and business, making big pivots when you're scared. These are the themes of my conversation with Dr. Jillian Mandich. When I invited Dr. Jillian to come on the show, I envisioned chatting about how entrepreneurs can cultivate more happiness in their lives. But this conversation is all that and so much more. I was first introduced to Jillian when I stumbled upon her podcast seven or eight years ago called The Holistic Health Diaries. I was a keen listener and have been following her journey on Instagram ever since. And it is another true testament to the power of social media because it's been really neat to watch her evolution. Fast forward to today and Jillian and I were able to sit down together and record this episode at my visionary HQ here in Toronto over a coffee. This episode is a little bit lengthier, so either listen in one good long sitting or maybe divide it into two chunks if you must, but do not miss a beat. Jillian shares her beautiful story of building out her personal brand, getting her PhD, and the many paths that she's walked to find her place in the world today as a happiness researcher. In this episode, we cover so much. We talk about how to pitch yourself to the media and land a spot on a TED Talk stage, even if you've never spoken publicly before. We talk about the time in her life when she was saying yes to too many things, feeling pulled in a million directions, and what she ultimately did about it. We talk about a little prescription for loneliness if you're a solo entrepreneur or just lacking connection in your life. And we talk about the one thing that all of us could benefit from scheduling more of into our days that you're probably not scheduling any time for right now. Before I share more about my episode with Dr. Jillian, I just wanted to share a little bit of business. All right, visionaries, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the podcast. You may have noticed we're getting 
really close to 100 episodes and my heart is thumping just saying that. So stay tuned because I've got some really cool celebrations planned for our 100th episode and the weeks that follow. So you'll basically want to stay tuned to the show, but also make sure you're following me on Instagram at Kelsey Rydell. A little bit of other business. I want to let you know that I have one private coaching spot left for April and it is already March. So if you've been thinking that you need support in the realm of coming up with a marketing strategy or building a brand that stands out or coming up with ways that you can increase your referral traffic and gain clients Or maybe you want to talk about going back to the drawing board when it comes to your social media strategy. You need a marketing plan in order to accelerate the growth of your business. And I would love to be that person to support you. So if you do want to learn more, you can head to KelseyRidal.com and just let me know that the podcast is what sent you. Uh, I love hearing from the community here at Visionary Life. And if you want to take this relationship to the next level, you know I am always excited to hear from you. So please never hesitate to get in touch. And quick little shout out. I want to thank Healthy Planet for sponsoring today's episode. So you guys know I'm an early bird, especially if you follow me on Instagram stories. I'm often posting early in the wee hours of the morning, but for me, waking up at 5.30 is one of my high-performing success secrets as a business owner. And that's when I find that I am most creative, and that's when my wheels are really turning. But before I sit down at my desk or head off to my office, you better believe I'm spending a good five to 10 minutes brewing my morning cup of coffee, which really sets me up to have an hour or two where I'm just so dialed into the work that I'm doing. So what I love to do is actually get a brand of coffee called 23 Degrees for my morning beans. It's organic. And if I'm keeping it simple, I'll add a splash of nut milk, but I also love blending in something like a collagen powder, an MCT oil, or a tablespoon of coconut oil. Because all of these additions to your morning coffee actually pack a powerful punch in terms of the nutrients they give you and the energy you need to sit down and create without the distraction to your digestive system. And because I know your life is full and busy like mine, having these simple hacks is one of the best ways to stay on top of your nutrition while not overwhelming yourself with so many ingredients. So in order to keep us all fueled up with our morning coffee supplies, like our coffee beans, our MCT oil, or our collagen powder, Healthy Planet is offering a discount to all of the Visionary Life community members. You can save 10% on any online order over $49.99 when you use the code VISIONARY10 at checkout. That's VISIONARY10. So head to Healthy Planet Canada dot com and start shopping. It's so easy to have your health goods delivered straight to your door. All right, let's get into today's episode. Dr. Jillian Mandich has a PhD from Western University in Health Sciences, and her primary areas of research are happiness and health. She is the founder of the International Happiness Institute of Health Science Research, She is the co-lead investigator of the Canadian Happiness at Work study. 
She's part of the Meant to Prevent research team at SickKids, and she appears regularly in the media on shows like The Social, Marilyn Dennis, Breakfast Television, The Morning Show, and CBC. So don't miss her tips in this episode for getting media exposure when you're just starting out in business, creating a TED Talk, which she did in 11 days, and how to combat loneliness as a business owner, and so much more. If you're listening to this episode, please take a screenshot and make sure you tag Dr. Jillian and at Kelsey Rydell. So we would love to know that you're listening. It truly means the world, not only to me, but to my guests. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Jillian, welcome to the Visionary Life Podcast. I I believe this is our first time meeting, but I did tell you when I met you, I was an OG subscriber to your podcast, which was how many years ago? It's got to be like, actually, I w- you know the Time Hop app? Yes. I saw a post with Ange and I from our podcast that was six years ago. So probably in the ballpark of six years. Okay. Yeah. Because I remember I had graduated from nutrition school. So I was really getting into that whole wellnessy mm-hmm. world. And a guy in my class, he recommended listening to your podcast. And so that's, I think, how I got connected with you. And then through Instagram, I've just kind of seen what you're up to. And Actually, I reached out maybe a year ago for you to be on the podcast yeah. and it got lost in your inbox, but then you followed up with me a couple of months ago and I was like, oh, <laughs> that's like my inbox. Sometimes it's like a black hole and then like oh eight gosh. months later you have for me. I feel I need a better system, <laughs> but I think this is all in great timing because you have some exciting things coming up and we are just going to dive into everything that you do and what got this all started for you. So thank you for being here today. Oh, thank you for having me and your really, really awesome space you have here. It's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty cozy. Yeah, work in progress, but I'm happy to have this as a designated recording studio. So let's start with some quick fire questions so the audience can get to know you a little bit. Right. Where did you grow up? I grew up in London, Ontario. London, Ontario. And you said you just moved to Toronto recently. I did about a year and a half ago or so. So, so kept my London phone number, <laughs> like we were talking about. <laughs> but uh, I live downtown Toronto now, and I'm really happy that my commute is not two and a half hours anymore. Mm. Yeah, that's a game changer <laughs> yeah. for sure. Do you remember what your first job was and then what was one thing you think you learned from that job? Yes, my first job, I was a cashier at AMP, which is now Metro Grocery Stores, and I got hired when I was 15 and it was the most fun job. I remember you had to learn all the codes for all the vegetables and stuff. And the first one I learned, and pretty much every cashier you talked to was bananas. bananas. 4011. I yes. still remember the number. <laughs> if you put a nine in front, it's organic. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize that, that it was, oops, just putting a nine in front that made, I thought it was an entirely different code. No. So if you look in the thing, okay. anytime there's a nine, it's organic. it's organic. Yeah. So that was my first job. And I really learned a lot of responsibility from that job mm. because I had to go to work at a certain time. And at the time, I'm the oldest of seven kids in my family. Oh, wow. And so if I wanted to have money to go buy my things, I had to learn how to work for it at an early age. But I think that it was amazing because it really instilled a work ethic and I learned the value of a dollar very quickly. Mm, so good. <laughs> Is there a self-care practice that you've been really into lately? Yes. So I'm the type of person that's like, go, 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 always um, wanting to do more. And I'm very achievement oriented. And recently I've been creating space in my life for silence. 
And this has been something that's very difficult for me because I'm the type of person that when I wake up in the morning, when I'm making my coffee, I've got a podcast on or I'm listening to an audiobook, or if I'm driving or I'm on the streetcar or whatever, I'm always listening or consuming or thinking or working. And I'm really starting to realize that we need time to process our thoughts. And so my self-care now has included time to think and time to be quiet. And that was a very difficult thing for me at first. So I actually took up puzzling like doing puzzles mm. because it gave my brain like a little bit of something to do. So it was kind of like a gateway to quiet without having to be on all the time. But I really more than ever am learning how important quiet and self-care isn't always about doing. Sometimes it's about being and sitting and thinking and chilling. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you bring that up too, because I think many of our listeners, myself included, we feel this inner drive to always be learning and like get that next podcast on and then go to the workshop tonight. And we forget that sometimes sitting in stillness is where our visionary ideas come from and processing the day is actually a vital part of living a good quality of life. Absolutely. And I think part of it too is that especially when you're in a job where you're not doing a nine to five where you go and you leave, there's always more you can be doing. You can always send one more email, do one more post. And so it's really tricky to create those boundaries to to not feel that pressure like you're not doing enough or you're missing out. And so really wrapping your mind around the fact that being quiet, being still, taking that time is actually contributing to productivity. It's not just time that's wasted and you don't need to have guilt associated with that quiet time. That's been a big lesson for me. And so would you suggest to the listener who needs more quiet time and who doesn't prioritize it that they actually schedule it in or just keep the devices off, flip them over, don't put on the podcast when you're cooking dinner? I think it's different for different people. For me, I really like my calendar. So I started by scheduling it to build the habit because it really wasn't second nature for me to do that. And I think from all the years being in school, it's like you always have more schoolwork to do. And so my habit was do, do, do. Mm -hmm. And so it would have been too difficult for me to just make time every day or be like, oh, I'm going to take time today to be quiet. It just would never happen. Mm -hmm. So for me, at first, I used to schedule it to get the habit going. And now it's to the point where if I don't take that time, I start to notice it and I can feel it and Mm -hmm. then I'll take it. And I really needed that scheduling at first. Hmm, good. But that's also how I know it's really important because now that I don't, if there, I go through a couple of days where I don't take that time, I feel it. Mm-hmm. And to me, when you start to notice when things are missing in your, in your life or in your body, that's a good sign that, hey, your body's talking to you and it's telling mm-hmm. you something. Yeah. Awesome. I love that. Uh, fill in the blank for this statement. Something that brings me a lot of happiness lately is... Hmm. Okay, I'm going to say something. (laughs) It could be anything. Honestly, sex. And I say that because um, for a long time, I didn't understand how much it contributed to happiness. And I think as somebody that was always go, 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 I got to the point where I was so tired at the end of the day that I I almost convinced myself that I was so productive that I could fill my cup in different ways. Mm -hmm. And it's only been in the past year or two or so, I would say that I really understood that physical part of happiness is a real thing Mm -hmm. and whether it's with a partner or not like taking the time to be in your body and to enjoy your body and to feel good so not just that mental piece of happiness that we always talk about but also like the physical experience of happiness Mm -hmm. is a really important part of the entire happiness equation and I think sometimes when we think about happiness it's changing our mindset or focusing on gratitude. And those things are absolutely critical. But the piece more and more that I'm starting to realize, especially with women Mm -hmm. that we don't talk about or that we don't think about is 
being in our body and enjoying our body and no matter our shape or our size or our age or our gender, knowing and being comfortable and feeling good and letting your body feel good is a really important piece of it too. I can almost see your previous answer of getting quiet more contributing to the enjoyment of sex more, right? Because when you finally take the time to slow down and be with yourself or just truly be with your partner in silence without all the stimulation, then you may feel reconnected to that inner drive to get physical. And so when you crowd that out with too many things on the to-do list, of course it's not enjoyable, right? You get to the end of the day and you're like, no. No, I'm tired. (laughs) I don't want to do that. But you're, you're absolutely right. And I think part of it too is that when you get quiet enough, you can actually listen to your body. And, and part of connecting with, with a partner, um, is really having that time together. And I think especially when you're go, 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 and you're busy all of the time, it can be so easy to distract yourself from those things and some of those more primal physical things. And, uh, so to take that quiet time, it allows you to come back into your body. And then when you're in your body, you can enjoy your body. Mm, I love that. And it's especially relevant because there are a lot of startup entrepreneurs that listen to this podcast. And I think we can be so type A towards our business that we push those things to the wayside. So I'm really glad you brought that up. So let's zoom the lens back a little bit, assuming that uh, some people don't know your journey of studying at Western for many years. Why don't you bring us back to that timeline and just like what your journey at Western was like? Because I know it was a long one. 11 years. (laughs) That is longer than I even thought possible to spend at a university. I know. It's a lot of years of paying tuition. Oh my goodness. (laughs) So yeah, tell us what you studied, what drove you to do your master's and your PhD, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Bring us to that point. Sure. So I grew up in London, Ontario and all through high school, I was really good at math and science. And so I did an undergraduate degree at Western in health science and my area of focus was health promotion. So even from back then, I was always really interested in how do we live the best life ever and what can we do to contribute to showing up fully and really living that best version of our life. And all through my undergrad, my idea was to go to med school because if you're good at math and science, you go to med school or that's what my parents told me anyway. And so after I was done, I applied to med school and got in And at the same time, there was something in my gut that was just kind of uneasy and I couldn't figure it out. And so when I went into my undergrad degree, I was the year of the double cohort. So in Ontario, we used to have OAC or grade 13 and they got rid of it. So the year that I started, there was two years of high school students going in and I was the younger of the two years. So I thought I felt a little bit young. So I decided I'm going to defer my med school acceptance for a year and I'm going to work and get some life experience. So I went on Workopolis. Remember Workopolis? Workopolis. I don't think that exists <laughs> I'm totally anymore. dating myself. <laughs> <laughs> so I went on Workopolis and I applied to every job with the word health in the title. And I ended up getting a job at the Middlesex London Health Unit working in public health in their research department. And I started doing a lot of childhood obesity and family health promotion nutrition research. And I got to work with people in the community. I got to work with people at the university. I got to go to conferences. I got to work with data and I realized how fun that was. And one of the things that I love to do is like ask questions and find out answers. And so from that, I thought, you know what? I don't think med school is a home for me. I think I want to go do a master's because I love research and I want to be able to do my own research. So I went back to Western, did a master's degree in health science as well. And I specialized in child and youth health. So I was studying childhood obesity, a lot of physical activity, sedentary behaviors, nutrition-related stuff with children, and specifically parent-focused childhood obesity interventions. 
because when you involve the parents, the interventions tend to be better than if you just involve the children. So I went right from there into my PhD because I wanted to, my mom's a professor at Western and I always thought she had the best job in the world because she was home for my soccer games and she got to do cool research. So I thought that's a pretty good job. And so in order to do that, I had to go back and do a PhD. So I stayed in health science and specialized again in health promotion. And in year two of my PhD, I ha- you have to do what are called comprehensive exams that are your comps. And it's like the worst period of your PhD. It's a couple months of really stressful time where they give you a topic and you have to read all the literature on it and become well-versed. And then you write a paper and you sit in a room and you have an oral exam for three hours. And so my topic for my comps was parent and family focused interventions to address childhood obesity. And when I went through the data, I realized that there's a really high attrition rate, a dropout rate for obesity interventions, which is the same for a lot of different type of lifestyle interventions because it's hard to maintain and get people coming, especially over an extended period of time. And not only that, when you look at a six or a 12 month follow-up, so after the intervention's done, you can follow up with them at six or at a year a lot of times the kids revert back to baseline. So as soon as you remove the program, they kind of go back to doing what they were always doing. And this really was like sitting heavy with me because I thought, what's what's the point in a way, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and I also with the time was really humming and hawing because I had two nieces who were not overweight or obese. So my research could never help them. And also, I mean, as you know, our weight doesn't necessarily indicate health, right? You can be overweight and obese and be healthy and you can not be overweight and obese be unhealthy. So I thought, why am I using weight as a cutoff? Because I used BMI as a cutoff for my studies. And so I was at Pilates one day where all good things happen, right? (laughs) And uh, I was on the, yep, yep. I was on the reformers and the the woman next to me was a a prof at Ivy at the business school in London. And we were talking about, you know, I was saying I'm, I was using languaging, like I'm getting through my PhD. It's a means to an end. I need the letters after my name if I want to be a professor. And I started thinking to myself, like, this is, this is wild. Like, what am I doing? I'm investing so much time and energy and effort to get through. Like, is that really the life I want to live? And she said to me, you know, you should really look at my sister's research. She's at Acadia and she said, studies sustainable happiness. And I thought, oh, what's that? The thought of studying happiness never even like was on my radar. And I went home that night and I Googled sustainable happiness, started reading PubMed and I went down this big rabbit hole Uh, So sustainable happiness is more happiness from an environmental perspective. So how our environment affects it. And then when when I started going down that rabbit hole, I was looking at health and happiness. And they're so highly correlated. And basically when you're happier, every part of your life is better. Like it almost acts like an amplifier. Mm -hmm. And then it also acts like a buffer to help mitigate some of the more challenging times or emotions or feelings that we have, stress, anxiety, sadness. And so I thought, wow, like this is actually really health promotion and weight is nowhere in the equation. It's universal. We all want to be happy. And we're also not really taught how to be happy. So it's a huge opportunity in terms of research to to learn something that can make a positive impact on, on someone's life and not just in terms of like, if I teach nutrition, you know, this is what a, a healthy meal looks like. That's great, but it's very narrow in terms of the reach. When you teach happiness, the benefits extend to your personal life, to your family, to your friends, to your work, to every part of it. So I switched topics. Started researching happiness, and uh, I graduated. I convocated in June this year, or last year, I guess, um, at Western in Health Science. And then as soon as I was done, I moved here to Toronto, and now here I am. Well, congratulations, Thank first of you. all, on ending that 11-year journey. I know. Um, I think what's really important to point out from your story is that 
you made the pivot knowing that you were already on one path researching obesity and doing that, but then having that kind of epiphany moment of, Hey, it's okay if I need to make this change. And although it probably felt scary, like did that add on a year to your study? Yeah. That's why I was 11, not 10. Yeah. And it, it reminds me of people who are in jobs right now where they think, gosh, I'm already, I've already been here five years. I might as well just stay till retirement. Whereas what's vital to realize is that like we only get this one life and to make that pivot, it's okay. And yes, you might be scared. And yes, you might not know if that's going to be the right trajectory. Like maybe you wouldn't have been happy researching happiness, which is kind of an oxymoron. <laughs> but again, like it is okay to pivot. Give yourself permission, which sounds like that's exactly what you did. Um, and I, I think it's an important lesson for us to constantly be reminding ourselves that if something isn't bringing you as much joy as you think, you're using language like I have to get through this or I, I'm a slave at my work or I have to you know, drag myself into the office today, maybe that's a chance to challenge yourself. Is there something else I'm meant to be doing? Yeah. And, and the other piece too is that it's not like when I sat down with my guidance counselor in high school, I said, I want to be a happiness researcher. Yeah. I didn't even know that was a thing. So... It's, it's one of those things too, where even if you don't know where the outcome is, when you start following like your bliss, like Joseph Campbell would say, you start following the things that you like, it evolves. Mm -hmm. And I always, I still use that as an example for myself in my life when I'm not sure what I want an outcome to be, but I know the direction I want to go. I, I have trust that if I'm moving in a direction of things that make me happy and that I enjoy doing that really fill my cup and energize me, trusting that the steps mm -hmm. will come because a lot of times what the outcome is hasn't even been created yet. Yeah. And especially with today's day and age with all the technology and all these things that are evolving and changing, the whole s landscape is changing. And so mm -hmm. sometimes we don't even know the outcome and just keep going, put one foot in front of the other, trust faith and pay attention to your languaging and your thoughts and your feelings, because that's what I use as my compass to navigate as I go. Mm -hmm. So important to pay attention to your languaging for the mm -hmm. longest time. I didn't realize the words I was saying, like the shoulds and yes. the, I wish, but have to. Yeah. Once you tune into that inner voice, it's like, Oh wait, that is uh, not good. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to ask you though, was while you were going through this journey of completing your PhD, did you ever have visions of becoming an entrepreneur, say, or starting a personal brand? Or was the intention really to teach and be a prof at Western? Yeah, absolutely. And I actually, so I'm a part of Archangel. It's an um, entrepreneurial mastermind for big-hearted entrepreneurs. And my friend Giovanni that started it, we'd go out and I'd say, I'm a student at Western. And he always would look at me. He's like, Jillian, like you're an entrepreneur. Like, don't you get it? And I would always fight him. And I would say, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm going to be a professor. This is that. And so even though I was displaying entrepreneurial skills and talents and tendencies in my mind, I was a student at Western. And so what was interesting was that when I finished my school, I was, um, I was really my, a lot of my identity was wrapped up in that. And I had to really reevaluate that for myself and start to shift my lens to see myself as that because all through school, I saw everything else I was doing beyond the classroom as a fun hobby on the side, which in a way was really cool because it was complete passion and what I was inspired by and what I loved to do. And that filled my cup so that I could sit through all my statistics courses all the time, right? Mm -hmm. And it, it wasn't at all even on my radar. Mm. And I, and when people would tell me, I would almost like fight against it. At the same time, I did concurrently, while I was in my PhD, 
I am, um, there's a program at Ivy, which is a business school at Western. And I was an innovation scholar at this program. So I was still, even though I was in my PhD, I was concurrently learning at the business school at Western. And still, if you would ask me, I would have told you I wasn't an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. So I think maybe that's where if I would have taken my own advice about getting quiet and sitting with things back then, I maybe would have seen it a little more clearly than I did. And eventually I did. And so let me ask you before we move on, do you identify as an entrepreneur right now? Yes. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I have to be because (laughs) I don't have a, like, I'm not, I'm not a professor. I don't have any interest in being tenured and I really want to create my own life and my own way of using academic research and sharing that information in a way. And so I really had to step in and to own that role Mm -hmm. in order to allow me to feel empowered to take those steps to really do that because our mindset and how we look at ourselves before anything else, I think is such an important piece of the equation. Mm -hmm. So when you decided that maybe teaching wasn't going to become your full-time gig moving forward and you simultaneously probably started launching what maybe you didn't call at the time, but it was a personal brand. What were some of the first steps you took to pivot away from teaching? Like what were your offers? How did you start marketing yourself per se? Or what were you up to as you knew, okay, I need to start building something else so that I can leave teaching? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting because I didn't really think about it like that. I, I love teaching and to this day, and I think for my entire life, like I love learning information and sharing it in a way that may, especially when it can make people's lives better. Mm -hmm. And so what I had, the big cognitive shift for me wasn't not teaching. It was recognizing there's more classrooms than just a university. Ah, and so what happens, yeah, (laughs) 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 what happened was I, I started Uh, In my master's, I started noticing when I would go with my friends that I was talking like an academic all the time, using big words. And and sometimes my friend's eyes would like glaze over. And I realized, wow, like, and, and this is the same for any industry. When you get deep into it, you have your lingo, you have the way you talk. And especially as an academic, it's very sort of scientific, prescriptive, big words. And so what I started doing was I started doing writing for mag, started with magazines. I was writing for magazines, um, which evolved into TV. And I did that as a way to not talk like an academic all the time. Ah. So I thought this is a skill that I really need to hone. And for me, one of my guiding principles through everything wasn't an outcome. It was what skills do I want to develop? That's always kind of been something that I've focused on. And I really, the rest sort of comes when I think about it from a skill focused perspective. So the skill that I noticed that I would really needed some improvement in was communication. And so I was doing TV. I started doing TV as a way to recruit for my research studies. And then the light bulb went off of, wow, this is actually, I'm still teaching. It's just a different classroom. I'm in somebody's living room or they're watching me on their phone. They're not in my university classroom. It's still teaching. And so that's mm-hmm. how that TV media speaking side, it, it, organically grew through this desire I had to hone my skill of being able to teach and communicate in a way that was really accessible. Because I feel like one of the other things is having the privilege of being at a university and the opportunity to study at the level that I have is such, I see it as a privilege. And to be able to then do something with that and take that information and share it with people and use it in a way that they can actually make their lives better. To me, that's the whole purpose of research. And so to bridge that gap uh, is something that I've always been really passionate about. And so Mm -hmm. I've seen 
speaking and podcasts and TV and radio and documentaries and all of these things as ways to teach all of that information in a way that gets out to more than the biggest class I taught at Western was 500 students, Mm -hmm. which is a big university class. Of course. And yet on the global scale, it's a drop in the bucket. Mm -hmm. So that was my, my way of really trying to figure out how do I expand my teaching beyond that. Mm -hmm. And I love that you've really just shared that you clearly have adopted a growth mindset, or maybe you've Mm -hmm. already had that your whole life, but that concept of fixed versus growth. And you said you asked yourself that question, what skills do I want to develop? And then you went and chased those paths. So somebody who's listening who doesn't understand the the difference between fixed and growth, if you feel like you have a fixed mindset, you would not be looking for skills because you'd think you were born with the skills you have and that it's not possible for me to be a public speaker. It's not possible for me to host a podcast because you feel like you weren't innately born with that. But I love that you've just shared with our audience, like with having that growth mindset, you can continue to learn and it's okay to ask yourself, what skills do I want to develop and how can I take the first step towards getting there? Because anything is possible. You just have to have the right mindset that you can learn at any age and it's never too late to adopt new strengths, skills, um, and talents. So I think that's really cool that you brought that up. So now when somebody asks you today, Jillian, what do you do? What do you say? Because we have so many multi-passionate entrepreneurs and listeners of this podcast. Uh, So I like to ask that question because I know it can be tough when you do have a lot going on. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes I I laugh in my head because I'm like, that's a great question and I'd love the answer. (laughs) And like, does it need to be defined? So usually what I'll, I'll say is I'm a happiness researcher. Oh, cool. And then I'll get this like look like this confused look on 95% of people's faces. Like, is that a thing? <laughs> and and it's funny because, I mean, truly everything that I do comes back to studying happiness and then finding ways to share that information. Um, and it, it's interesting because happiness is the one thing we all want. And it is it is like the scientific pursuit of happiness is a really valuable piece of the equation because there is a lot of our happiness that's a skill-based learned behavior that we can actually use research and science to help inform and to build that skill. And yet, if I told you I was an obesity researcher, people would be like, oh, okay, she studies obesity. Mm-hmm. When I say I'm a happiness researcher, people seem to think like, what? Is that a thing? So it is a thing. And, and I choose the word oftentimes researcher over expert because I feel like the more I know, the more I know I don't know. And so part of inherently this idea of being an expert is that you really realize the depth of the knowledge and stuff. And so I'll usually say happiness researcher um, because pretty much that's the through line in everything that I do is there's some element of reading research, doing research, uh, talking about research. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I sit here saying that now. And if you would have asked me a few years ago, it's really evolved. Of course. And I think one of the things that I did and this is like hindsight looking back, I didn't realize it at the time, was that for a long time, I tried so many things. I did what I loved. So I was teaching yoga to UFC fighters. I was doing a podcast. I had a cooking show. I I did so many different things. And well, like my cooking show, for example, I, I barely even cook anymore. And when I did my cooking show, chefs taught me how to cook. I wasn't teaching it. At the same time, A, the skill development of being on camera was really valuable and it led me to where I am now. So sometimes even if you're not sure, I think trying different things, especially if you're trying to hone in on that for yourself, that's one of the most valuable things that I did and it really got me to where I am today. Mm -hmm. And so I think sometimes it can be overwhelming or it can almost paralyze you if you don't know where you're going. 
And so really just taking that next step, that next step, that next step, trusting that when you get to where you need to be, you'll know the outcome. Um, Mm -hmm. That's been something that has got me to where I am. And I'm so grateful that I did that. And I tried a bunch of things because it's, it's really not only solidified for me why I'm so happy where I am, but also it gave me the depth and the breadth of experience and knowledge to really be certain that I am doing what I'm meant to be doing. Mm-hmm. And it's nice to hear too, like sometimes we look at people and we're like, oh, they must have just always known they wanted to be a happiness research. But <laughs> like me and like a lot of the listeners, your journey was not linear, right? Mm-hmm. You had to try a lot of things. And I think where a lot of people get caught up, um, I learned this concept from James Clear, who wrote oh, Atomic yeah. Habits. And he talks about this concept of idea, motion, and action. And in kind of a, a quick version, like the idea is I'm unhappy in what I'm doing and I want to make a change. Okay. A lot of people feel that right now. The motion is being like, I should try to find a new job on Indeed, or I should try a yoga class teaching it to, um, what do you say, MMA yeah. or whatever. <laughs> but the action, like going to actually do the cooking show that you're not sure if that's going to be your path, or going to actually take the boxing class, or going to try a new co-working space, that's the action that is going to move you forward and progress you towards finding that ultimate thing or that happiness level that you're not experiencing right now. But so few people get into action, right? Mm-hmm. We all have like the ideas and then we, we are on a Facebook group being like, how do you find your passion? It's like, take some action. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, anyways, I just wanted to bring yeah. that up because it really stirred that up in me. It's so so true. obviously media is a big part of what you do mm-hmm. with your time uh, and fills a lot of your work week right now. So how did you begin to get media exposure for your brand or even get yourself media gigs? Take us through that process because I know a lot of our listeners would be very curious. Yeah. Um, uh, Like I said before, it really, it wasn't like I set out and I was like, okay, I want to be on TV. It really came from this desire to, to teach in a different classroom and to really hone the skill of effective communication. So I started in London. I was recruiting. And so I went on our local Rogers TV station, like the London channel, and I did a segment recruiting for a study. And then I emailed the producer and I said, I'd love to come back and like talk about a health topic. And I just continued to go back and go back and go back. And from there, I spent probably two or three years doing exclusively local TV, sometimes radio, all that I set up myself. I just would email uh, the producer with ideas and different topics. It eventually evolved. I did a segment called Mandage Mondays and I would go on a Monday and talk about different health things that I wanted to talk about. Things from like making green smoothies to squatty potties to like just whatever I was into at the time. <laughs> and after a while I started, I, I do really well when I'm challenged and to, when I have a goal and I want to achieve it. So I'm like, okay, getting pretty comfortable with my local TV. What's the next step? national TV. So I went online and started looking up what are the shows, like the national shows and how do I get on them? And I would Google or go on Facebook or LinkedIn, or I would just play detective trying to find the email of a producer. And most shows, if you actually dig on their website, there is a contact us or page, or Mm -hmm. you can find some way to actually, there isn't a single TV station in Canada that I haven't ever been able to find some sort of contact for somebody. It's usually a generic uh, email and I would send pitches and they started with happiness and I would send a pitch basically explaining in a very short way why happiness was important and why I was a good person to talk about it and some ideas for a segment. 
And my first ever segment I received contact back from was the social. And so I was like, okay. So I worked with the producer. We worked on our script and I was super nervous. And I went to Toronto and I did the social. And when I was there, that was the first time I had a live audience. And I left feeling like, wow, that was so fun. And so then it became really fun for me. And I just would email and email and email and build the relationships. I have never to this date, I do not have a PR person, nor have I ever had a single person or paid a single dollar for any type of media exposure. So if you're listening, I'm, it's possible because I did it and I continue to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, building those relationships, reaching out. The big piece I think is really in how you pitch and how are you leveraging and creating uh a topic that's relevant and useful for people. I always put myself in the place of like service. What do, what do people need to learn and how can I help facilitate that? That's kind of how I think about things and really making sure that you're on the ball and prompt when you email and send things back and you make it really easy for them. You come early, you, you're put together, you're well-spoken, you've practiced, you've gone through all of that so that when you're there, it really is a total polished package. I think that's Mm -hmm. a really important piece. And And I think that if I didn't do that London TV, I wouldn't have been as successful because I wouldn't have honed those skills. If you would have just thrown me on the social right off the gate, I mean, even still, I watch back my first, I cringe when I watch my first social clip back. I had worked with the producer and we wrote every question together. And so all there is that the hosts get cue cards and teleprompters to learn to have the questions, but my answers all there. I don't have any support. I memorize or you remember them. And after every single question, I said, that's a good question. <laughs> and I watched the clip back and I was like, oh my goodness. And I, I also, I'm like, I already knew and wrote the questions. Why am I saying that? <laughs> but then I realized when you're on TV, your nervous yeah. things really come out. And part of it is, is as horrible as it is, watch yourself back yeah. and see the weird, strange things that you do because we all do the them. little ticks. So that you learn. <laughs> and I realized when I was teaching, at the time I was teaching that class with 500 students and nobody would ever want to participate in class. So I was always very affirming with the students and I'd say, mm. that's a good question. That's a great question. And just that patterning, when you're stressed and nervous, sometimes habits come out that you don't know you had. So I, oh, that's funny. I, I <laughs> had I'm to learn. Have to go watch that. Oh my segment. god! <laughs> but that's that's how it is. And that's how it is. Even, We're all you know learning right along with you. Yeah, and I think that's part of it too. To remember, you it doesn't need to be this perfect, polished thing. It, it's a process. Yeah. And really, the big piece is that you show up. You speak from your heart. You do the best that you can. You do practice ahead of time. You do prepare really well, and then you continue to evolve. I still do to this day. I have a media coach. We watch back my tapes like football yep. players do and critique me and it's the worst, best thing ever. Yeah. Um, but even getting feedback from people in the industry that can help you are just always really trying to learn because mm-hmm. that's how you start and and it is possible to do it. Yeah. Well, and it's a good reminder too to not wait till you feel like you are perfect. Yes. Just go for it. Like at a certain point, you just had to get after it and start emailing those producers. And I love that you shared your journey of just being scrappy and finding the media contact and not going straight to thinking you had to pay thousands of dollars to get Mm -hmm. media exposure, but instead just being really resourceful and doing it yourself. And I think, like you mentioned, if you have a good idea and something that's really valuable to the audience of, for example, the social the producers are looking for content. Like that's, that's their exactly. yes, good job. Point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I think sometimes I had someone say to me recently, okay, well, Jillian, it's easy for you because you have a PhD. 
And I said, well, I've been doing media for six years and I just got a PhD last year. So it's not that. (laughs) It's not that. And I think we can create stories, whether it's this person has this and I don't, or this person looks this way and I don't, or this person's topic is this and that's not mine. We can, no matter what, create stories of why we can't and just not just as easily, it's actually usually more difficult, but it is possible to come up with more reasons why we can. And I really believe that each and every one of us have a message to share. And if you have something to share, it's your responsibility to really share that with people. And Mm -hmm. the media can be a wonderful platform to do that on a bigger scale and to touch more lives. And so while it can be very um, easy to create excuses or to sit in fear or be paralyzed by fear. And it, I mean, let me be very clear. I get nervous every time I go on TV. It, it hasn't got easier yet. So um, that's just part of the growth of it, you mm-hmm. know? And not only are you now a little bit more seasoned with media, but you've also been speaking on stages. Yeah. I've kind of seen through your Instagram highlight. I was digging through a few of the stages you've been on lately. So in your opinion, what would you say is one essential quality of someone who delivers a memorable keynote or a mm. memorable speaking gig? Yeah, I've, I've been really learning this. Um, and I came to speaking after teaching. So one of the things I've actually been working on personally is I am used to lecturing and giving a university lecture and giving a keynote are not the same thing. And this is something I've had to learn is it's similar and it's different. And one of the pieces that's really important is, is especially when you are one person on a stage with a large audience, making that connection with the audience, with each person is so important because it's like, you know, that Maya Angelou quote quote about how people won't remember what you said, but they'll Mm -hmm. remember how you feel. That really is, especially when you, when you leave a keynote and someone says, Oh, what was it? Oftentimes you connect first with the feeling before the message. And sometimes the message might even escape you, but it was the feeling or the residue of that. That is really what sticks with people. Mm -hmm. So that's been a big piece. And the other thing that I, that I really have come to realize is that it's a total package thing. Uh, the way you look, the way you do your hair, the way you dress, the way you speak, your pacing, your your breathing, all of those things come into it just beyond the words that you say. And I used to want to script out verbatim everything that I would say and I would practice it. And I realized that there's an element of knowing where you're going to go, trusting that you want to say that, but also paying attention to all of the other pieces. Mm-hmm. Like I... I remember one time I was on the social and I was talking about the health benefits of nature and I was, I found this jumper. It was like the cutest onesie and it looked like a jungle. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is perfect. I'm talking about nature. I'm going to wear this jungle jumper. It's going to be great. And then after I, all the feedback I got was, oh my goodness, Jillian, I loved your outfit. Your outfit was so cool. Where'd you get your outfit? And nobody commented on the content. And that was an eye-opening experience for me because I thought, wow, there is a part of it where we influence how things land and what people see. Mm -hmm. And so I've really tamed back a lot of my outfits on TV because I want them to be nice and professional and not that memorable because Mm. I want my words to be the thing that that I leave people with. And so sometimes Mm -hmm. even like I used to get really nervous and play with my hair all the time. (laughs) I still do sometimes. Uh, that's distracting. And then people might remember, oh my gosh, she played with her hair or, oh, she uses filler word a lot or, oh, they wandered a lot or they spoke really fast. So Mm -hmm. when you are really honing your craft, paying attention to the total package of it, how you present yourself, how you're doing your hair, all of those things, I never really 
considered as mm-hmm. a piece of the equation. And more and more I'm realizing it's not just what you say, it's how you say it, how you look when you say it, how you act when you say it, how you breathe when you say mm-hmm. it. It really is that entire package. Mm, those are really good <laughs> tips. And you're right. Like that's so often overlooked because oftentimes we can get very caught up in the content yep. that it's just like, okay, throw on whatever you have to wear and just get there. But you know, like you said, the breathing and the way you deliver and the energy that you exude while you're giving that talk is equally as important because you're right. Nobody remembers what you said. They don't remember your four tips and all the sub tips you gave. So um, when you're planning a talk, maybe it's 45 minutes or an hour, what is your process? Because to some people, that is so overwhelming to think about getting on a stage or being asked to speak and then having to actually create the talk. So do you have any tips for creating the content and planning it in a way where you can really get the ideas out of your head and onto paper? Yes. I also am one of those people that can find it really overwhelming. And one of the things I've really come to learn is that especially in the happiness space, for example, I know so much research and so much content and so much of it has personally been really beneficial for me. And so sometimes when I'm planning a talk, I want to like give all the information. And what I'm realizing is, and I learned this from when I did my first TEDx talk, mm-hmm. one idea. I have a tendency to want to overload content, but this one light bulb that I had It takes you a while to process, to embody, to think about, to digest. And so taking a talk and throwing 10 light bulbs I have, none of them really land. Yeah. It's really about picking like, what is your key message and what are the stories around it? Stories are such a powerful piece of it. And I think especially because I come to speaking from teaching, I didn't really understand the story piece as much. Uh, I wanted content, content, content. And at first that was my patterning and my habit. And now I realize it's really the total package. You look at someone even like Brene Brown, her Netflix special, right? She had great content, but so much story around it. And story mm-hmm. also humanizes it. It makes it more personal. People can relate to different pieces of it. Mm-hmm. That was a really important piece. The other thing that I realized when I did my first TEDx talk, and just as an aside, if I'm sure people listening want to do TEDx talks, I did. The way I did my first TEDx talk was very similar to the way I did media, where I went on the TEDx website. Mm-hmm. I looked about six months or more out. They have a list of all the upcoming TEDx talks. I found the ones that were either in cities I wanted to go to, cities that were driving distance to me. I would, And they would list the name of the organizer, but no contact information. Oh. So I would Google based on like if they were at a university or the city and try to find a way to contact the organizer. And I would reach out, whether it was on Facebook or LinkedIn or email, with my idea. And the first ever TEDx I got in Yorkville here in Toronto, the organizer reached back out to me because I had pitched. So it wasn't that I I didn't even know anybody that was doing TEDx's at the time. And so that was how I got my first talk was by reaching out and doing that. So that's, that's that side of that. Mm -hmm. And I remember the morning of my, my talk, I went, um, one of my best friends, also my makeup artist. And so she was doing my makeup that day. And I was sitting in her chair and like barely breathing. And she said to me, she was like, Jillian, like what is wrong with you? I've never seen you like this. And I was so nervous and anxious because for me, doing a TEDx was a really important thing because they have been so influential and instrumental in the learning and the growing in my life Mm. that I was putting so much pressure on myself that I was so nervous. And she's like, Mm -hmm. Jillian, you need to breathe. And I was like, okay. I got in the car. I drove to Toronto. I was sitting out in front of the venue and I was thinking about how I was going to get out of doing this talk. 
because I was like almost paralyzed, oh like literally could not like paralyzed, could not get out of the car. I'm like, maybe I should fake that I was in a car accident or maybe I should fall right now. Or <laughs> I was thinking of all like, that's where your mind goes when you're in fear. And then I thought, nope. And anytime I'm in fear like that, especially for a talk, I put myself in the place of the person in the audience. And I think, what am I here to do? What message do I have that somebody here needs to hear? And when you put yourself in that service Mm -hmm. mindset, it takes you out of ego and me, 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 me. And that's Mm -hmm. really powerful. And so I eventually talked myself up to know, to go in and do the talk. And when I left that day, I had this moment of reflection. I was driving back and I realized that we, I was so out of my comfort zone that day. And I hadn't been that nervous or scared in a long time. And from that day, I committed to putting myself in situations where I felt scared because that's where the biggest growth goes. Mm -hmm. And so for the next year, I sought out opportunities more than ever to get uncomfortable. And whether that's doing your first talk in front of five people or it's starting a podcast or it's writing a blog, whatever it is, when you really start to hone in and reach into those places where you're really uncomfortable, those are the places where the most growth happens and the most satisfaction because you're really you're pushing yourself to your limits and you're not just staying comfortable because that's that's like where mediocrity lays and that's not where you or me or anybody listening wants to be amen to that and I think that's a good reminder to all of us like check in have you done anything in the last 30 days that has scared you and put you out of your comfort zone and that did make you shake with fear at least a little bit because that like you said that's where the big growth happens and I think that uh, we all like to have that certain level of safety and security but it's vital as someone who wants to continue to evolve and grow that you do put yourself in those challenging situations and so it's nice to hear that you know you you had that with the TEDx conference and will continue (laughs) to have that right I did another TEDx this year and I was not quite as nervous and I was still totally Mm -hmm. nervous and the service mindset is a great tip so thank you for sharing that so bringing us to where you are today uh, what does a current week in the life of you look like running a personal brand and getting uh, media coverage and doing all the things you do you said you're heading to U of T after this so paint us a picture for someone wondering like what does a week in the life look like yeah I don't know (laughs) (laughs) every one of the things that I do know about myself is that I like new and different things like I the monotony of day-to-day is not something that I enjoy at all and so one of the things I love about the life that I'm creating is that it is really diverse. And especially after finishing my PhD, I really started to get clear on what are the things that, what are my priorities and like, what are the things I really want to do? One of my challenges is that I have like sparkly key syndrome where there's like so many things and I get so excited about so many things. And so for me now, it's really been honing in on like, what are my top priorities? And so for me, those are teaching and research. So uh, I teach on in media. I, when I speak, to me, that's all sort of feeding that teaching piece. And the research piece is also really big for me because I feel like I've had the opportunity to research at Western for 11 years. And when I moved to Toronto, I realized I was really missing that piece. So what I'll do when I do speaking sometimes is I'll actually do corporate consulting as well, where I'll go in and look at the happiness levels in a company. I do a lot of like corporate wellness and happiness. So we'll send out a survey to a company. Like for example, I just did a big keynote for RBC. So what we did was ahead of time, we sent out a survey to all the staff. I compiled the data. And then not only was I able to tailor my talk to meet their needs more specifically, 
It also gave me a sense of the audience and what I could do and how I could deliver the message. So that has been really cool. And then beyond that, I also started doing research at SickKids um, because I really still wanted to be affiliated with a research institution. I wanted that that piece where the rigor of that. And so originally I thought maybe I'd go to U of T, but like we talked about, I don't want to be a tenured professor. So I'll guest lecture there and things like that. But I go to sick kids, um, part-time and do research on a project called meant to prevent. So it's a type two diabetes prevention program for children and families where there's a big mental health component and a physical health component Mm -hmm. looking at nutrition. And it's actually really cool. It's, um, a collaboration between all 13 children's hospitals mm-hmm. and they've come together to really pool all the latest best evidence-based research for parents and for healthcare practitioners so that it's like a hub where you can go and figure out what how you know can I help my child if they're stressed and they're having anxiety or they're having body weight issues or I don't know a healthy recipe to feed them so I have that piece which is so fun and I mm-hmm. because my master's degree is in child and youth health I really, I come back to that a lot because, you know, children are our future. And to me, it's really important that in addition to all of the media and the the corporate stuff, which takes up a large majority of my time, that I still make sure that I schedule in <laughs> the piece to really focus on on kids as well. So I do that. Um, I, I also uh, just launched a big study. Uh, looking at the workplace, because a lot of my research and my speaking right now is a lot of like corporate stuff. Yeah. Um, we don't really have a lot of good Canadian data in terms of happiness at, at work. So another colleague of mine, Dr. Rumi Billen, um, who did her PhD at the University of Toronto in resilience, we've come together. So a happiness researcher and a resiliency researcher, and we partnered with the Canadian Mental Health Association to really start to look at are Canadians happy at work? What is contributing to happiness or unhappiness? And what can people individually and corporations do to really foster a happiness-promoting, safe, fun, enjoyable, productive, collaborative work environment? Mm, I so I work on that as well. So those are kind of the big things that are going on with me. Um, I think more than anything, once I got clear on what are my priorities, which are teaching and research, Everything that I do when I fill my calendar right now, I always try to bring it back to those things. So a lot mm-hmm. of things will come across and a lot of opportunities. And instead of asking, is this a fun thing to do? Yeah. I've really started to hone into, is this really contributing to the bigger vision of where I want to go and what I want to contribute in this world? Mm-hmm. And that shift has been really pivotal. And it's also allowed me to, because I what ended up happening, I felt like I got so overcommitted yeah. that I was just so overwhelmed that I wasn't even fully enjoying everything because I was always rushed and stressed. And so dialing it back a bit, really honing in on my priorities has been mm-hmm. such a big game changer in terms of my happiness and everything that I do mm-hmm. in terms of even my relationships. I'm working less, my boyfriend's happy. Yes, and so. uh, right, because that's a piece of it. And um, yeah, so that's, those are kind of the things that I do. I do Days are totally different. I'll, I do, though. One of the things we talked about scheduling earlier, mm-hmm. I schedule in downtime, especially after big events, because I am such, like we talked about earlier, go, 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 that sometimes I'll, I'll walk off a stage and I'll be like, okay, what's next? And I've been really trying to create time mm-hmm. afterwards to relax a little bit, to reflect on what happened, to to take that time, because it's so easy to just go, 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 go. And the other piece is I've been celebrating a lot more. Because I, I realized like my boyfriend and I, we were talking the other day and we kept saying, we're going to create a great life. We're going to create a great life. And we were sitting <laughs> in our beautiful condo in downtown Toronto, looking at the CN Tower, having a glass of wine. And I was like, you know, 
we have a great life. Like, what am I talking about? We're not creating, we are creating a life. We like, so really dialing it back to right now. And I think especially as you're trying to build a brand or a speaking career and or a speaking career or, or do whatever it is, it can be so easy to be so focused on a destination that we forget or we don't choose to remember along the way, all of these amazing things that are happening. And it's really learning and celebrating all of those pieces because just like happiness, happiness is not a destination. It's a practice. So is our life. So is building a brand. It's all part of it. And it's not necessarily an outcome-based achievement factor. It really is. If you don't love what you're doing every single day, and not to say that like, for example, editing a podcast can be probably pretty tedious Mm -hmm. and it's getting you. So there's pieces of it that are laborious or that can be monotonous Mm -hmm. or draining. And at the same time, really making sure that along the way you're doing things that you enjoy, Mm -hmm. because if you don't, you're going to get to the end and you're not going to enjoy it. Mm, Such good tips. And I love that you pointed out too, that there was a phase in your life where you were saying yes to all the things, but then hitting that point where you had to realize, I need to understand my priorities. Like you said, uh, what was it? Research and teaching. teaching. And I think that's vital for anyone along their journey at some point to stop chasing all the shiny things and instead go deeper on those two things and really narrow your niche. Or for the person who thinks, I need a million clients to make this business work. Yeah. Why not just use the clients you have and really drill down a little deeper? You already have these relationships. You already have these skills. So trying to continue to build a million things just makes you mediocre at a lot of things and makes you feel scattered. So Yeah, and I think the other piece too is one of the things that I've been learning is as you start to grow, and especially we'll use speaking for an example. When I started speaking, I would say yes to everything because I was clear I wanted to work on speaking. And so I would say yes to any opportunity, whether it was like in a public library for free, if it was in a classroom, if it was somebody was doing an event, I said yes, 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 because I needed to start somewhere. And we all do. And especially with speaking, it's a really great way to hone your craft by just starting and talking to anybody that will listen, whether it's five or 10 or 50 or however many people really starting there. And then as you grow though, there is this, it becomes a point where you have to start charging. And then when you start charging, then your fees increase. And I had a really hard time switching my mindset as I went. Mm -hmm. And as I continued to increase my fees, because I'm getting better at my skills, I'm honing my craft, I'm investing in myself. And so that's the other piece is starting saying yes, yes, yes. And then getting the confidence in yourself to be able to start charging. Because Mm -hmm. if you do all of the things you love and you're making no money, it's a hobby and there's nothing wrong with that. And if you are going to use this as the primary method of sustaining and supporting yourself, it truly becomes a point where you need to start charging and, Mm -hmm. and it working your way up. You know, I used to charge 50 bucks for a talk and then I would go to a hundred and then 500 mm-hmm. and then up and up and up, yeah. but you start and then you slowly grow. Mm-hmm. And, and it really, as you go, like, I remember my first like really big talk where I, I charged several thousand dollars. I was like, how can I say something that brings that much value? And then I really had to think about it. I'm like, well, Jillian, you have studied for 11 years and you Mm -hmm. did this. And so there was a lot of personal mindset stuff that I had to do in order to get to the place to be able to charge that kind of money. Mm -hmm. And, And that's a piece of it too. And really stepping into and owning your value and your worth and really trusting and knowing that you've done the legwork and you have value to share with people and each and every single one of us do. Mm-hmm. And more than anything, it's knowing and owning that within ourselves is the first step. Mm-hmm. 
I think about in terms of feeling kind of that guilt of charging like 5,000 for a talk. It's like you paid hundreds of thousands to go to school and to study and to learn from so many people. So to an audience member who paid $200 for that ticket, they get to download hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of knowledge in one hour. And so they're getting a steal. Yeah. <laughs> it all comes down to it. You know, I, uh, I heard this story. I don't even know if it's true or not, but I love it. Um, it was this story and they said that someone went up to Picasso and asked to draw a picture and he took out his pen and paper quickly in five minutes, drew a picture and handed it to the woman and said, that'll be $10,000. And she's like, that just took you five minutes. And he said, no, it took me a lifetime to take me five minutes. Yeah. And I was like, you know what? It's true. And so sometimes I think we, we don't remember that the value that we bring isn't the time that we are on stage. It's all of the other pieces really contribute to that value. And when I started to realize that, mm-hmm. it was a big catalyst in terms of the mindset shifts that I could make to own my value. So good. So I feel like I can't let you go without one question about happiness because yeah. I know you have so much insight <laughs> to share. And I know people can find your work online if they want to learn more, uh, just tips to be happy and all that. But being that this podcast attracts a lot of aspiring and startup entrepreneurs, and these phases can be very lonely. I'm wondering, do you have any tips for keeping happiness levels high while you're working alone, while you're experiencing the stress of starting a business, while you're feeling like nobody understands my vision for what I'm creating? Any tips that come to mind? Yes. I love that you asked this because a lot of the research right now is really coming out to show how detrimental loneliness is to our health. It is as bad for us as smoking. Oh my God. <laughs> and uh, the, it can actually elevate your risk um, more than diabetes, or pardon me, obesity as well. So they're really, in terms of pure physical, loneliness can be very detrimental. So much, even in the UK right now, uh, doctors can write prescriptions for loneliness. And no matter what your age is, I think loneliness has two pieces. One, where you're alone. And then two, the other piece of loneliness can be where you're with people, but you're not connecting. And the other interesting thing is there's research out of Harvard that talks about how the number one predictor of both our long-term health and our happiness is social connection. And what I mean by that is having at least one or two people in your life that you can go to and can confide in and they can confide in you. It has that reciprocity where you feel like there's somebody that could be there for you and you're there for them. And I think especially... Uh, for entrepreneurs or people that are building your business, it can be a very lonely experience. You spend a lot of time at your computer, a lot of time at lo- alone, and it's essential to make the time to still connect with people. And like I talked about before, how it can almost seem like counterproductive to take time for quiet. Mm-hmm. Going and meeting a friend for coffee, having lunch with a friend – Those are not unproductive things that are taking you away from your time. Those are the things that are putting you in the best position to be able to do the best work. That being said, the caveat to that, I think, is really checking with who are those people you're spending your time with. Are they draining you or are they energizing you? And really honing in and prioritizing the relationships that energize you. In specifically the entrepreneurial space too, one of the things that I found that was really beneficial was connecting with people that were kind of in the same spot as me. Because say, for example, you're feeling really lost or you don't know your purpose or your vision and you're kind of feeling frustrated. It can be a very lonely experience and you might meet somebody who's going through the same thing. Mm -hmm. And talking about it doesn't actually change the outcome. You're both still in that spot, 
but knowing you're not alone mm-hmm. and going, knowing that somebody else is going through a similar thing that you are mm-hmm. can be one of the most comforting things in the world. Mm-hmm. And even sometimes saying out loud what you're going through, whether, and even if it doesn't change the outcome at all, there's power in that. And mm-hmm. so I think, especially in today's day and age where we're so digitally connected, we're more than ever also disconnected from each other. Mm-hmm. And yes, it's great to have friends on Instagram or, or on Facebook and to comment back and forth. The biggest thing though, I really believe is making time for in-person or even like in a good, better, best in-person, but also even a Skype or a Zoom or a FaceTime with people that you care about and prioritizing that. And if that means you need to schedule in your calendar to do it, mm-hmm. do it. And then the other pieces actually execute. So don't be canceling them last minute because you feel really overwhelmed. Ooh. And then when you are connecting with people, connect, put your phone away whenever possible. If your mind is going to what you have to do that afternoon, really try to bring it back because if you're going to make the effort to take the time, why not maximize that? Why not really soak it in, enjoy it and allow yourself to get the most benefits of it? Because Mm -hmm. it's kind of like when I was like, um, I was reading all this research about self-care and I thought, okay, Jillian, I got to do self-care. So I started getting massages and then I would check my, I would lay, you know how you lay face down on the table? I would put my hands under and I would check my email under the table. I know. I know. Yeah. (laughs) And then I thought, Am I even really like, yeah, my muscles are a little loose, but I wasn't even like relaxing. And so I thought, no, Jillian, this needs to stop. Go all in, disconnect for an hour. And from that, I was like, wow, I really do see the difference. So when it comes, especially with people, be present with that. Really Mm. make an effort to make the time and to be present when you do make the time because it's one of those things where it really will, the benefits of that you leave when you're with somebody that's really energizing and inspiring, you leave feeling more inspired. And when you get back to your desk that afternoon, you're much more likely to be energized or you have these great ideas. And and if you can connect and get out into nature or something while you do it, or I try to go for walking meetings. I read the Steve Jobs book and he he did that all the time. And that inspired me. It's true though. When we start moving, especially when you can Mm -hmm. couple moving and connection, it almost has this like really, it amplifies the effects. Mm. And that's a really big piece. And to know that, there is research that suggests the benefits of that too. So it isn't just this nice thing. There really is a lot of evidence to support the efficacy of that and the importance of that and really making sure that even if it's one hour a week, find something that's manageable for you, that's realistic for you, because especially in terms of goal setting and goal achievement, we want those things that are realistic because Mm -hmm. if we set the the bar too high, I'm going to see a friend every day, then um, A, that might not be so good in terms of your productivity. And then B, when we don't reach those goals, we can almost become more discouraged, yeah, right? Absolutely. So figure that out, figure out who are those people and and really make an effort and time to connect. Mm, I love that. That'll be my reminder <laughs> to text a friend and go for a workout day, go for a walk with our dogs. I yeah. love that. Uh, well, this has been amazing. I feel like we could have talked on forever today. Uh, but if people want to learn more about you or what you're up to, where they can find you, uh, give us the spiel. <laughs> yeah. So my website is a good hub for everything that I do. And it's JillianMandich.com, which is with a G. I'm Jillian with a G. So G-I-L-L-I-A-N-M-A-N-D-I-C-H.com. Um, and also uh, coming up on March 20th, the International Day of Happiness, uh, Ramit uh, Dr. Rumi Billen that I talked about earlier, her and I had just finished a study looking at our Canadians happy at work. So the white paper for that will be coming out as well as we create an online course teaching all about happiness and resilience, the latest research 
tips, tools, tricks, ways that you can improve and build your happiness and resilience muscle because when you do them together, the synergy is even more powerful. So that's all. You can find all of the links for all of the things on my website. Um, all my social handles are there too, or it's just my name at Jillian Manage on Amazing. all of socials. I will plug all of that in the show notes so that people can find you. And I hope that they learn more about the course that you're creating because it sounds incredible and like something that is so needed in this world. So Jillian, thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom on the podcast and I wish you all the best. Thank you for having me. It's been really, really fun. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Visionary Life. I love bringing you these conversations on a weekly basis. So if you could help me out by rating and reviewing this show on your iTunes app, I would be so grateful. You can also support the show by taking a quick screenshot of the episode and sharing it on your Instagram stories. Just make sure to tag me at Kelsey Rydell. If you're feeling stuck, uninspired, stagnant, bored, or confused in what your next step should be, it's time to take action. Please reach out because I would love to connect with you. I'll catch you in the next episode.